Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 12th to 18th of April, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. Before getting into this week's updates, I would like to send a special shout out to our good friends at GoTaikonauts and Spacewatch.Global, two excellent sources for space industry news. This week, we're going to bring some updates on China's civil space program, and in particular, their double 100 goal, a surprisingly blunt article about China's aviation supply chain. But first, Jean will brief us on some updates from Kasich and their uh, propulsion technology. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. John, what is Kasich uh, up to as it relates to propulsion this week? Surely, yeah, let's talk about that. So this week, uh, we saw an article that was published by the Science and Technology Daily, a Chinese newspaper, on a Kasich Institute completing a pre-cooling technology validation test, So, which is really an essential technology for space plane propulsion. Now, before we really dig into this um, piece of news, let's bring up some some points on why pre-cool, what pre-cooling technology actually is and why it's essential for, for, for the space plane. So just throwing in some quick definitions here, a space plane is a spacecraft that's able to maneuver like an airplane once it's significantly into the Earth's atmosphere by generating, generating lift, but at the same time, it is able to operate in orbit like just any other spacecraft. And so um, one of the main differences between the space plane and the just ordinary rockets is that um, for the space plane, you can't really use traditional um, rocket propulsion. And so rocket propulsion being, you know, you have a tank with the oxidizer on board and you have another tank with the fuel on board. So for the space plane, uh, rocket pro- rocket propulsion is probably not efficient enough to make space plane works. And so you have to look at other technologies such, such as air breathing um, propulsion. So the idea is you still have a tank with the fuel on board, but for the oxidizer, you're actually using the air that's coming in through the intake of, uh, of the engine, right? And um, this isn't necessarily um, rocket science in the sense that, you know, that's what Airbus and that's what Boeing is doing on their, their aircraft, right? But when you, you're using air breathing propulsion technology at very high speeds, at hypersonic speeds, so rule of thumb is uh, beyond Mach 5, what happens is you have these massive shock waves that form in the intake of the engine and which bring the temperature uh, you know, very high. We're, we're, we're reaching four-digit temperatures and uh, normal engines and just materials that we use cannot um, sustain such a high temperature. And um, when you have such high temperatures that are reaching the compressor and the combustion chamber, well, what happens is you also have phenomenons where uh, you have, you know, molecular dissociation and that brings the efficiency down and the combustion just doesn't take place as you'd expect it to. And so um, for the space plane, which um, which goes way beyond Mach 5, uh, the issue here is really to be able to bring the temperature that's coming into the intake down at acceptable um, temperatures. And that is what um, that is what a lot of these space plane um, projects are really focusing on to make this, this work. And so that's what pre-cooling is. It's bringing these four-digit temperatures down to potentially negative temperatures in just a fraction of a second. And so back to now the news article on Kasich. Apparently, Kasich's Third Academy's 31st Institute, which is an institute that specialized in aerospace propulsion, they've been looking at pre-cooling technology since um, June 2018. And in past conferences, they've also shown uh, technology roadmaps where we see that um, 
they're developing this pre-cooling technology from the late 2010s all the way up to the early mid 2020s and then after that they have um, they're planning a prototype of a 15 ton thrust and a 30 ton thrust combined cycle engine which would then be integrated onto uh, a two-stage to orbit spaceplane prototype and so the latest test that was unveiled in the article uh, basically brings down the temperature of the air in the intake at 1000 degrees celsius to minus 150 degrees celsius in 0.01 seconds that almost sounds like science fiction to me and quote unquote it's with the largest scale and largest airflow in china so unfortunately we don't really know what were the mock speeds in the wind tunnel we don't know what was the actual airflow the institute sort of you know keeps that information secret but um i mean anyway it still looks like a massive technical milestone for um the 31st institutes um, so-called Yunlong engine, because that's the name of their uh, combined cycle engine they're, they're building. Now, definitely there's probably still a lot, a lot of research that is to be done on this type of engine for the Yunlong engine to actually one day, you know, run operationally and see the day. Because as far as I know, there is no operational equivalent of such an engine anywhere else in the world that's, that's operational. Um, there's been a lot of research on this sort of engine, notably in the sixties and the seventies in the U.S., but that were abandoned due to costs and just the complexity of such an engine. There is currently a sort of an equivalent um, that's being developed by um, Reaction Engines Limited. In the UK, they're building the Sabre engine, which is uh, to some extent very similar, although there are some differences as well. I think the Sabre is planned to power the Skylon space plane, which is a single stage to orbit, whereas Yunlong uh, powers uh, a two stage to orbit um, um, space plane. And now speaking of a two stage to orbit, um, space plane designed by Kasig that probably reminds some of our viewers of a, of a space plane called Tangyun that was announced in, I believe, 2016 or 2017 by Kasig, um, and which is a two-stage to orbit space plane, right? And so it seems that Yunlong looks like a, a very suitable candidate to power the Tangyun uh, space plane developed by Kasig. But um, looking a little bit into the Chinese space force, it seems that a lot of Chinese space formers um, disagree with that statement. I saw only one post where, I mean, the person mentioned that, um, the Tangyun propulsion is based on very different technology compared to the Yunlong. Probably, I, I would guess scramjet and, um, rocket propulsion, uh, mixed together. And, um, and I think to some extent, they're definitely right. When you look at the timeline of the Tangyun, Kasich mentioned that they're expecting to have a first launch, a first, uh, you know, first test flight of the, of their prototype around 2025. Whereas when you look at the Yunlong timeline, we're looking more at a first prototype of an engine in the late 2020s. So that probably means that any first flight of a space plane with that engine would come after that. So um, so that, yeah, that just thickens a little bit the plot around Chinese space planes that probably suggests that there are two of them. I do not know the Institute 31 is very secretive on what it is doing. There's not that much really substantial information um, in that article that we mentioned. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, exciting project, but a lot of mystery. Uh, yeah, molecular dissociation. That's one that I wrote down. I'm going to have to to circle back and get a little bit more. That, that's just, that is it. We could have an hour long discussion on that topic and I would still know nothing. But uh, science fiction indeed, as you, as you mentioned earlier, this sounds like some pretty incredible stuff just from the perspective of... Um, yeah, I mean, what what Kasich is is doing in the the potential, you know, the very long term space industry supply chain, I guess. And and when I when I read this um this article, I was I was kind of um I was impressed at the 
the extent to which the idea of expanding into commercial space has really seemingly permeated quite deep into Kasich as a company. And I mean, I guess it it sort of um, it's a reminder that these large scale initiatives by these very, very big state owned enterprises. So like when a 35 billion US dollar per year revenue company like Kasich says, we want to get into commercial space. And we're going to do it through these five big projects, the the five clouds projects. Um, you know, you you can tend to kind of think in overly simplistic ways, saying, "Ah, well, Kasich is going to build a Tung Yun," and uh, and perhaps not really be mindful of of all of the the very small technologies that would go into a, a Tung Yun, as it were, or or some you know some other other non Tung Yun space plane. So basically, just this um. Again, the, the depth of commercial space, or or just indeed, you know, very long term uh, non commercial space um, activity in, in Kasich is is impressive, and and I it, it kind of got me wondering. Um, I know that over the last handful of years, the biggest sort of most high profile proponent of Kasich's commercial space push has been the the former chairman uh, Gao Hongwei, who was uh, the chairman of Kasich for most of the 2010s, and I, I found out uh, a couple of months ago that that he. Um, in in June of last year, he was uh, remotely he 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 left from his his chairman post, and it was a little bit. Um, I had heard for a couple of years that you know that Gao Hongwei was planning on, on retiring, or that there was a transition plan to some extent, but but the removal seemed rather um, sudden, and the the press releases seemed very short. Um, so I don't know, but basically, it's interesting that Gao Hongwei, who is the sort of architect of Kasich's commercial space push initially has now been been replaced. So it'll be interesting to see whether Kasich's commercial space activities are are sort of firmly well established enough to where they will continue to, to grow and it will continue to be a growth sector, um, or whether this uh, new leadership by, uh, as it turns out, a former CASC executive, uh, Yuan Jie, is uh, whether he has different plans for, for the Kasich group more generally. Um, I guess my last point to mention is that it would seem that, that Gao Hongwei, the former chairman, was uh, prescient in the sense that he was talking in you know the mid 2010s about how Kasich needs to get into commercial space and how this is a, a growth vertical for the company and that they can, um, you know, they, they they should they should get into this. And um, as it turns out, you know, you if you look at the investment into commercial space in China since then, if you look at the um, you know, the relative success thus far of of projects such as the Wuhan uh, National Aerospace Industrial Base, where you you have a, a rocket factory and a satellite factory that are pretty much built, um, it it seems that uh, that again he he was quite prescient was uh, was former Chairman Gao. Um, so yeah, nothing else from my side on uh, on the Kasich update. I, I do wonder whether Chairman Gao was a fan of two thousand one a Space Odyssey back in in his day um, <laughs> because uh, he he definitely. He had some pretty radical commercial space ideas for Kasich. They, they're doing some cool stuff even in his absence. So I, I wish them luck. But um, John, if you don't have anything else on that, I guess we can move into the civil space program updates from the week. Yep. Speaking of ambitious space projects, so uh, another article that attracted our attention this week was um, an interview of Wu Weiren, who's the chief designer of China's lunar exploration program. And so he was interviewed by an official space industry media in China called China Space News. Um, where he announced that China was aiming for the double 100 goal, shuang bai mu biao. So just to two points here to to explain a little bit what this is. Firstly, I want to say that China really likes a lot anniversaries that are linked to its modern history. So notably, the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921 and the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And so 
very often when you have, um, you know, round numbers, big numbers around these anniversaries, you know, 60th, 70th anniversary, you have big events to celebrate this. And one such example, recent one is in 2019, that was the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. We had this massive military parade in Tiananmen Square on National Day. And that happens, that happens every year. But in 2019, it was, you know, it was more massive than usual. And it was also an opportunity to showcase some space and some um, military technology during that parade. So um, you're, you're probably seeing where I'm trying to go here. In 2049, that will be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And so um, China apparently is planning to send scientific probes in what is usually considered as the boundaries of the heliosphere, which is situated 100 astronomical units away from the Earth. So there you have it. You have 100 astronomical units on the 100th anniversary. That's called the double uh, 100 objective. And this, um, the announcement of these probes is not really news in itself. We know that um, for a few years now, the Chinese are planning to send um, two probes into the vicinity of the heliosphere, notably the head and the tail of the heliosphere. And these probes are called the IHP, the Interstellar Heliosphere Probe. This is probably a, just a temporary name because we know that China quite often likes to name its space missions really at the last moment. So for example, the Tianlun-1 Mars mission was named recently only, and you know previously it was called Huaxing-1, Inghua-2, it had several names. Um, and even the rover that's on board Tianlun-1 currently that's in orbit around Mars hasn't been named just yet. So probably the IHP name will, will change for these heliosphere um, probes, and which bear also resemblance with the uh, NASA Voyager probes. Overall here, just wrapping wrapping this point up, I think that We've seen China have a strong focus recently in past years on the moon, more recently on Mars. This will likely continue, but we can expect very ambitious space pro, um, space exploration missions from China in the coming years, I believe, beyond Mars into the solar, solar system and even beyond that with, you know, with the heliosphere probes. We have notably, just to name two of them, there were plans for a probe called Ganda to visit Jupiter and one of its moons, Callisto. And there was also an asteroid sample return mission called Zhenghe, Zhenghe being a a famous, um, famous explorer in, in Chinese history. And yeah, I think both missions, both Ganda and Zhenghe, uh, I mean, if they're validated, they would be launched um, in the coming four or five years. So, um, so yeah, a lot of things to look forward to regarding space exploration in China to beyond Mars and, and, and the moon. Big fan of the name Zhenghe. That, that takes me back to, um, there was a book that was written at probably 10 or 15 years ago uh, called 1421. And the author had this, Kind of out there theory that Zheng He had somehow uh, sailed to the western coast of North America with his treasure fleets back in the, you know, seventy years before Columbus, and it's possible, but uh, it was definitely it was um, the, there. There was. I, I hope that the Zheng He space mission, I guess, uh, reaches as you know far-reaching and and far out places as as Zheng He did back in his day, and you know, in, in relative terms. But um, yeah, I guess one other sort of civil space program update that is not necessarily directly related to the the double one hundred um, plan. Um, an interview from from Zhang Kezian, who's the the head of the CNSA, um, and it was originally uh, interviewed with with Xinhua and then published in uh, in Xinhua Net. And um, you know, not not a whole lot of of new information, but basically reaffirming a handful of points um, from the the sort of the planning of the the five year plan. Uh, process and, and and sort of what are the Chinese space uh, the civil space program's goals uh, during that time. So basically, um, Zhang Kezian mentioned that the CNSA is is finalizing a sort of a a plan for the the five year plan period. 
Um, and within that plan, there's a number of areas of, of emphasis. And, and again, these include a lot of the usual suspects, um, but still worth highlighting that, you know, the fourth phase of the lunar exploration program, uh, some interplanetary asteroid missions uh, that John mentioned earlier, uh, some heavy lift, uh, so heavy lift rockets uh, and continued development of reusable space transportation systems. So basically, again, a, a handful of, of usual suspect type of, of technologies. Uh, John also referred to plans for a, a global communications, navigation and Earth observation constellation during the five year plan. Um, so yeah, again, they have very busy five years for uh, for the civil space sector in China. A lot of technologically ambitious projects coming up. Um, so on the topic of, of you know China's technological ambitions and and the next five years and and beyond that, um, our last update of, of the week is a, a report that was um, so that it was an article written by the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong that was summarizing a report that was published. Um, on the paper.cn, and just a very short disclaimer before getting into this news update, uh, neither Jean nor I have been able to find the original version of this report, which was again published on the paper.cn. Um, we both had a look around the, the Chinese language version of the website, and, and after about uh, probably 10 or 12 minutes of combined searching, could not find anything. So we are relying on a fairly uh, in-depth summary of the report that was again published by the South China Morning Post. Um, so Getting back to this report, uh, the report itself was published by the Development Research Center of Shanghai. It's a Shanghai government uh, research center. And again, published by a, a, the paper.cn. It's a website that is owned by the Shanghai government. And uh, the title of, of the, the SCMP story should be very clear as to what the report's conclusions were. Uh, and that was that China's aviation capabilities are stuck at the low end as uh, military civil fusion weighs on innovation. And uh, I received from from a, a friend of, of ours over at Go Taikonauts and, and Jean received the, the same email of, of this report. And that was the, the subject line of the email. I was like, wow, that is a brutal subject line. Um, so, you know, what what was the what was the meeting here? What was the report about? Um, so, as mentioned, it was written by a, a development and research center of the Shanghai government. And basically, the report was uh, very frank about the weaknesses that China has right now in its aviation industry supply chain. And that's in particular... Um, for for key technologies such as engines, airborne equipment, and new composite materials, this type of thing. Uh, the report also mentioned that China's airworthiness certification abilities are, are relatively weak and that they cannot be fully recognized internationally in the short term. And I, I quote a couple of those things, which we will make clear in the show notes what is uh, what is a quote from the, the article. Um, but basically, it, it brings up a handful of issues that, that we've highlighted on previous episodes of the Dongfang Hour, um, including things like military civil fusion being a potential enabler of certain types of innovation, but also uh, being a hindrance for certain types of innovation. Um, you also have some allusion to the the overly large influence of the state-owned enterprises and the impact that can have on, uh, on innovation in some of these sectors. Um, it also highlights an incomplete distribution mechanism of shared risks and benefits, which I think is um, kind of a, a, a reference to the Again, the kind of rent-seeking ability and, and the power of these SOEs um, in general, and so again, some some pretty intense points and and quite blunt in its um, in its assessment of of the of the the I guess the Chinese aviation supply chain uh, more generally. And uh, again, have not read the entire report, could not find the the entire report, but I, I my feeling is that this is a a report that is. Um, essentially a, a Shanghai government commissioned report in some way or another that is lobbying for increased sort of commercialization and increased devolution of 
um, if not power, you know, uh, administrative decision making authority, this kind of thing to provincial or, or city governments. Um, because I think, you know, you, you have an article that's talking about how, um, you know, th there's, there's these weaknesses in the Chinese aviation supply chain. They can be uh, worked out in, in a number of different ways. For example, the article mentions, I quote here, China's aerospace and aviation industry chain needs to be scientifically deployed, continuously expand the proportion of localized supply at the core level, take a solid step towards selective self-sufficiency, end quote. So, I mean, basically you have this um, saying that, that, it's more of a call to action saying our aviation supply chain is, is not sufficiently advanced and we need to do something about it. Um, and, and again, implicitly, I think possibly explicitly, I again, have not read the whole report. Um, it seems like the, one of the conclusions is, you know, give more power to the markets or at a minimum to the, to the cities, to the provinces, etc. Uh, just a couple of last points on my side, then I'll turn it over to Sean for your, your take. Um, the, the article that mentions that the report also cites uh, some of Shanghai's efforts in, in aerospace and aviation and, and space more, more generally. Um, so this included investing about 200 billion RMB into an industrial park focused on aviation manufacturing, um, which is, uh, which has plans for 200 billion additional RMB of economic activity by 2035. So it's, um, fairly large efforts within Shanghai to develop their aviation manufacturing. Um, sector. And we've also, we, we see just some um, additional discussion about uh, what Shanghai has done in, in some of these other industries. So um, yeah, I think overall, it's a um, surprisingly blunt report. I think that, you know, again, the, the Shanghai government, uh, it, it takes some degree of, of uh, confidence to, to, to be so uh, directly critical of, of, of sort of the way that the industrial base has, has been developed in China and, and some of the stakeholders in that ecosystem who are um, sort of implicitly harming innovation and harming, you know, self-sufficiency. Like these are, these are pretty serious charges to bring, I think, in, in a, in a country that's trying to become highly self-sufficient. So, um, yeah, Sean, anything from your side on this article? I, I definitely agree with your statement that, um, well, first of all, I, I'm, I was really surprised also by the openness, or you can say the bluntness of this, this report, usually the media and the government officials, they're, they're usually praising the Chinese civil aviation program and how China is just manufacturing its own indigenous aircraft. And so, yeah, that does not ring exactly have the same ring as this, um, this report. And also agree with your statement here that, um, this report was probably targeted at more high ranking Chinese officials and, and for decision making purposes. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why this report was not as easy to find in, in the Chinese media. Um, and I think that as U.S. Um, export restrictions grow on aerospace um, equipment. And we've seen that happen in the past, um, in recent months. And you can, you can notably check out some, some of the Dongfang Hour episodes from December or January. Um, China will undoubtedly look increasingly to make its own um, commercial aircraft end to end. And this is not actually something that dates back to the Trump administration. Um, I mean, even before that, in, in, there's a strategy called Made in China 2025, which was published in 2015. And already back then in one of the 10 priority industries uh, where China was planning to become, uh, to play a leadership role by 2025 was the civil aviation industry. So, um, so yeah, I mean, this sort of report that we've seen by the Shanghai government, this is, I think these are one of the, um, one of the reports that can help some of the Chinese decision makers make the right decisions in order to nurture a, a homegrown um, aerospace industry.
For sure. And uh, I don't know if you just heard that. Uh, I, I found I found an episode here of, of the Dongfang Hour on my side, and it, it started playing because I wanted to uh, to get back to the episode where we had mentioned um, the report from CSIS that, that takes a very similar take on the Chinese aviation supply chain, which I, I found is the episode from the 7th to 13th of December of, uh, of last year. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't necessarily think of that when reading the SCMP article, but just came to mind now was uh, a lot of the same takeaways as the the the, the U.S. Uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies article um, from last year. So yeah, that could be another, uh, I guess, I guess another another place to go for more information on on the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. So anything else from your side this week? Or are we? Um, all set? I'm all good. All right. Um, well, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Have a good day. Thanks for watching. Bye.